1: Welcome to Marvel Vision, a podcast about Marvel, the MCU, and right now, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And we are going to be talking all about Ant-Man 3, the third movie in the Ant-Man trilogy, continuing cohesively the story from the first two Ant-Men into the third
2: Ant-Man movie. Just the kind of language we always knew we'd be saying as kids. (laughs) <laughs> the third movie in the Ant-Man trilogy.
1: <laughs> well, we're definitely going to get into that. We're also going to get into spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie in theaters, definitely turn away now because this is a full spoilers podcast. We're going to be getting into it, talking about it. But before we do, I want to talk about how we saw the movie. I saw it at a regular movie
2: theater in regular
1: town, USA, a.k.a. Ew! I know, New York. You saw it at Disney World, right?
2: That's right. I was at Disney World with my fam, and uh one night, the last night we were there, everyone got back, and they were tired. It was Friday night, and I was like, I, there's a screening at 11 p.m. I'm <laughs> going to get the bus and go there. Went there, watched the movie. It was fantastic. But when you watch a Marvel movie so close to the home base, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like d- taking a drink from a fire hose. It's just you more, could, more than Disney than Disney. You
1: Walt's head. Sort of like floating next to you the entire time.
2: Yeah, and Walt, everyone who goes to Disney gets a couple hours with Walt's head. So I actually <laughs> brought Walt to the movie with me, nice. uh, Futurama style, and boy, did Walt, he had some notes about the movie.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I'd imagine he would. One is like, not enough floating heads, there's only one.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, what is this strange place? Why am I alive? You know, the yeah, questions is
1: kill me, kill asked. me, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, cool. So... That out of the way, why don't we talk about the movie? Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Did great at the box office. Not a huge surprise. Crushing. Um, yeah. Crushing. Um, but what were your overall impressions? I, I know already you know that I was a little more negative about it, let's yeah. say. But I, I, and I definitely want to get into positives. We're going to talk about positives first. But I'm curious to get your bead on the movie.
2: Well, let me say, it's just really exciting that Marvel finally has their Star Wars prequel movie. Uh, Finally has just the all Jar Jars. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oops, all Jar Jars. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, this movie is, there's a lot riding on it, it feels like. It's a kickoff Mm -hmm. to Phase 5. It's the big, it's a lot of Kang. Kang. We're going to get Kang all day. Kang Gang is coming for us, and um, and this is the opening of that. And I just thought uh, Kang is amazing. The movie is a little messy, and it, it wasn't as fun as I wanted it to be uh, across the board, I think. There's a lot of – it's a weird movie. I'm surprised how weird the movie is for it being a – big swing and not weird – the the other Ant-Man movies were smaller, uh, pun intended, and a little more focused. This is huge, weird, and without focus, I thought. Yeah,
1: I can definitely agree with that. I think my big thing is because of the lack of the focus is – I almost wanted things to be a little weirder. You know, there was a little bit of a wash in terms of the plot. Like everybody's bringing up the Star Wars comparisons, which I get because you have an emperor and you have a rebellion and all of these things. But it mostly, despite the fact that they're talking about there's this whole universe underneath their own, it seems to take place on one planet, one alien planet type thing. uh, Even if it's a teeny tiny little planet and the rebellion, I don't feel like you get a good sense of it other than, Boy, they're a rebellion, all right. You know how rebellions work. We can skip past all of that stuff about how Kang's bad anyway. Let's keep going. So there's a lot of, like, barreling through it in terms of the plot. I also just thought, and I know I said we were going to start with positive, but this is just sort of, like, overall, (laughs) it's it's a messy-looking movie. Like, I think the direction is messy and the look is messy. I don't know if they filmed all of it or most of it on the volume, but it shows uh, there's just, like, this brown wash over everything where – I like the Ant-Man movies. I like the first Ant-Man, really liked Ant-Man and the Wasp, and there's a real kindness going through those movies that just wasn't present here. It just seemed gross and occasionally kind of mean and not not fun to look at. That was my big thing. I was like, I don't like looking at this movie. So the, that that was definitely the negative for me but I do want to, and that's the overall negative but let's talk about some of the positives right and things that you liked in there uh, I'll throw out there positives no go ahead Justin I want to hear from you
2: uh Oh, p- positives. Yeah, the, I mean, Kang, across the board is. I feel like the movie sort of comes alive when he's there. He mm-hmm. has um, a real sense of himself in the movie, and is one of he has a, a direction. I think at all times in a movie where everyone feels a little bit like, where are we? What's happening? Where? Who am I? I'm lo- I'm lost. Uh, it feels like he is the one that is a bit of an anchor. I thought. Uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer stuff was, a. I uh, I was surprised that she was the center of the movie. It left Paul Rudd, um, off to the side, I think a lot weirdly. Um, but I, I like Michelle Pfeiffer's parts here. Like I thought the stuff uh, with her and Kang and I wanted to see more of her in the, in the microverse, uh, in the quantum realm, I guess is what we should be calling it microverse in the comics. Uh, so she was cool, um, and and Paul Rudd's very charming, even though he felt like he was acting in a plastic bag the entire time.
1: Yeah, I think all of the actors did an adequate job, you know, and I know that sounds dismissive, but really they didn't bring the movie down in any way. Paul Rudd, fine. Uh, Michael Douglas loves ants, clearly. Like, he had this incredible emotional arc of yeah. liking ants, and by the end he still likes ants, so that was pretty cool. Uh, but less joking aside, I agree with you, Jonathan I, Major's – just regal, gives this great presence. I don't think the script gave him necessarily a lot to do, and frankly, it didn't make a lot of sense to have Kang in this position, which we can get to in a bit, but he did a very good job with what he had. Yeah, My absolute favorite scene in the movie was the one of just Michelle Pfeiffer and Jonathan Majors hanging out and talking. like actually acting with each other with nothing exploding in the background, no plot things or limp jokes or anything like that, just like two actors acting about stuff. And that really – that popped for me in a way that nothing really in the rest of the movie did. I'll also throw out one that I think is very controversial, and I'm sure since you didn't mention it, maybe you disagree with me. I liked Modoc. I liked Modoc because – And I wish – hold on. Here we go. I'm just going to throw it out there. Hard no. (laughs) I wish it was grosser and weirder. Like There's a moment towards the end of the movie, and like I said, we're going to get to full spoilers. We haven't even talked about the plot of the movie. I'm just going to assume people watched it and know what's going on here. Uh, Actually, just very quick on the plot. So – before we get too far, just in case somebody cool. just in case somebody's listening to this and was like, I'm not going to see that in theaters. So uh, Cassie sends a signal down to the quantum realm. They all get sucked down there. Turns out that Darren, formerly Yellow Jacket, uh, captured them with that signal, brought them to Kang because Kang needs them to quote-unquote steal a part of a multiversal engine that Michelle Pfeiffer broke back in the day when she was working with Kang. Kang was exiled by a bunch of other Kangs, took over the Quantum Realm when he wants to come to the regular realm and take it over, and ultimately they stop him using some ads. So that's the overall plot of the movie. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. Wow. There's a couple of other things going on, but not much. But... uh Bodog is weird and he looked weird and he looks weird. He's a goofy, weird villain in the comics. And I think they chatteled that effectively in terms of like, this is upsetting to look at. I, uh,
2: let's go. Well, but here's the thing. Why did we do this? Cause it yeah. fe- it looks weird. His, it, the, the I just thought it was going to look better because I was mm-hmm. when I was like Modok is a weird idea so it must look dope or he has a big reason for being there and I thought it looked like he was just holding his face up behind a magnifying glass mm-hmm. which I was like that's not that's not 3D animation <laughs> that's not like cool CGI
1: I mean, listen, there's been a lot of talk in general about the effects in Marvel, and there's a lot of stuff that came out around the time that She-Hulk came on the air, talking about how overworked, underpaid, last-second changes that are coming in with these effects artists. So when I say this, not blaming the effects artists at all. The effects look like garbage for the most part, like absolute garbage. <laughs> so I, I do feel like if you can get past that, having a big-faced M.O.D.O.K. floating in his chair with his tiny little baby arms and tiny little baby legs shooting rays out of his head, um, I thought that was at least fun. Like there was something that was fun and comic booky about that. And I, I've seen a lot of fans call this out, and I think they're correct. I think this is why a lot of comic book fans are liking the movie. And we should definitely get and talk about the – fan critic divide towards the end mm. of the podcast. But I think fans are responding because it is very comic booky. It's very Kang looks like Kang. He's floating on his little uh, pla- blue platforms and stepping on them. Yeah, MODOK, despite the garbage effects, looks like MODOK and kind of acts like MODOK, but he's, he's dinky and dumb, just like he mostly is in the comics, not really a threat, just kind of stupid. And all of the stuff that's going on here, <laughs> all of the wash of a plot – it's the sort of thing that if I read it in a comic book, I might be like, yeah, that's a fun Ant-Man story, you know, but there's it, a well, difference. Here's the thing,
2: though, because... Yeah, uh, go ahead. A lot of people have said this movie is the, so comic booky, and I think that's an insult. The way mm-hmm. a lot of people are using that term, I feel like they're being like, yeah, it's comic booky. It's a bunch of stuff that I don't need to understand. I just get to sit here and listen to it. Like, and I, I find that to be, out of some people's mouths, some critics and, and other podcast people, A little insulting because if something is comic book, I want it to be like super imaginative, big mythology, really caring about the characters and driving forward a lot of story. That to me is what comic books are. And to say that this is comic booky because it's like in a weird place with characters that look funny, I'm like, that's not – that's not the compliment well, you think that's it is.
1: No, I agree with you, but that's absolutely not how I mean it. I mean, we read yeah. a ludicrous amount of 100%. comic books.
2: And I'm not saying you, I'm saying yeah, others. Yeah,
1: totally. But I was trying to sort of parse through my feelings about that. And I think part of the thing is, like what I was saying, it's the sort of thing that if this was an Ant- four-issue Ant-Man series and we read this, we'd be like, that was fun. You know, maybe it would yeah. have good art. Maybe it would have some poppy writing. You get like a Jeff Parker on it or something like that.
2: Oh, good t- it does feel Jeff Parker. That's a great. Right? Call. Like
1: it would be a, it would be a good time to read that comic. Years later, somebody would bring it up and we'd be like, "Oh, right, Ant Man Ant- of the Wasp, Quantum Media." I remember reading that mini series back in the day, and that's fine. Like, I'm fine with that. But what Marvel has always done very well is think about what works in the comics, now push that to the side, and figure out what works in the movies. And I think here in this movie, yeah. the the ratio was off. You ended up with more on the side of, "Oh, this will be fun because this is like a comic book." Which just doesn't work on the movie screen in the same way. That's what I'm trying to get at.
2: Well, and I think the main reason for that, from my side, is um, Ant-Man isn't the center of this movie, and he should be. Mm-hmm. The Scott Lang, Paul Rudd, that is the the secret sauce of the first two movies. Michael Pena, not a not even a ghost of Michael Pena here. Which can is I mention something uh, about great.
1: that really quick um, about the Michael Pena thing? I. I liked the beginning as well when they were on Earth. There were real backgrounds and real locations. I thought there were some fun bits in there. They weren't the strongest bits of the world, but at least I was like, okay, we're hanging out with these characters we like and we're setting up the situation. This is fun. But later on thinking about it, the fact that they needed felt the need to invent some sort of device, a.k.a. Ant-Man writing a book about his time with the Avengers to recap everything when there is literally a fan favorite character whose only job is to recap everything that's happened <laughs> already in the Ant-Man series. And they're like, nah, don't need him. He's not available, yeah. I guess. Take it away. was a little crazy. Yeah.
2: It, it was. And I think that just goes to show that like, there's, there's a bunch of sort of like odd choices that I think set sort of cast us off in the wrong direction with the movie like when a when a a superhero movie is built around the idea like will the hero be the hero like this was where cassie's like are you even a hero anymore i was like yes that's why there's a movie that (laughs) we're watching of course he's going to be the hero at the end of the day that plot to me is such a backwards way of trying to make a story and especially when so much of ant-man is like out of his depth in a difficult situation, which is the point of this movie. Mm -hmm. I was like, make him trying, but doing a bad job. Funny. Then it could be funny. It could still have the epic stuff. The idea of him fighting Kang, someone he has no business fighting, and somehow winning, that to me is so exciting. And in this, he had to be Captain America. And we just don't want Ant-Man as Captain America. Mm -hmm. We have Captain America.
1: Yeah. I 100% agree with that. And I think... Like you're kind of getting at here again when I was thinking about it afterwards and sort of running down all the characters in my mind, they all have the bones of an arc there, but it doesn't pay off in any logical way. I mean, to to run them down a little bit when I was trying to think through them, I think starting with Ant-Man... The idea that he saved the world, maybe got scared of it. You know, we saw that a little bit before with Tony Stark and Iron Man 3, where he has having the PTSD or he finally has his daughter back and he doesn't want to, like, get involved in crime. So he doesn't lose her again. I get all of that. Like, that is a good emotional arc to deal in. But like you're saying, when Cassie yells at him, it's like, you're not even a hero anymore what opportunity has he had he hasn't had there's no crime that he sees they talk about the blip refugees but we never see them we never see him walk by and be like what a shame and you know refusing the call so she's yelling at him for no reason and then ultimately like you're saying he he saves the day but kind of in an ant-man way but not an ant-man way the wasp no arc, like no arc. I mean, we, we could probably (laughs) no character, no character. We could talk out a little bit. There's a part of me that was a little happy about that because Angelina Lily was like a major anti-vaxxer for the past couple of years. She apologized for it, but put out a lot of dangerous misinformation at the same time. But her arc was like, well, I'm going to the quantum realm. I found out my parents had sex and now I'm saving Scott.
2: Yeah, there's no, also the chemistry between them is like negative, uh, non-existent. It's crazy. And especially at the end of the movie when they're trapped in the quantum realm for, what, 30 seconds before they get saved. I was like, leave them there. It's fine. Like when they get pulled out i'm like what was the point of anything he sacrificed himself by not going through the portal for 30 seconds of extra (laughs) quantum realm time i was like okay yeah uh but like when they're like kissing i was like it was like seeing (laughs) two twins kiss each other i was like this uh it's just not there and i guess they have to keep going with it but now that maybe we've completed the trilogy here we don't need to push them together when it feels like the characters themselves aren't interested in
1: that. Yeah. I also thought it was uh, kind of funny that Uh, at the beginning of the movie, Hope is now running Hope Tech or Hope Van Dyne Tech or whatever they're calling it. And they list all of these things. You're like, she's working on the environment. So she's working on this thing and this thing. And I expect that it'd be like, and not vaccines. She's not working on that. Not interested yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, getting over to Kang for a second, I'm just like literally looking down the cast list here on Wikipedia. But Kang, like we <laughs> talked about, great but I'm going to throw out my problem with this. My problem with this is I love the idea of Kag. Kag is very cool, but there are too many sci fi concepts going on in this movie. They shrink down, shrinking is the core of this trilogy, to a quantum yeah, universe, I- which instantly, in my mind, is less interesting than what they were showing off when they were going through the quantum realm before, because it's just generic planet 46, and that's pretty much it. And they get there, and then Kang is talking about the multiverse. But other than one sequence, it doesn't play it anyway. And Kang's like, right. "I control all of time. I will throw your daughter in a time box and watch you make you watch her die over and over again." And I was like, "Not that I want to see that, but let me see any of that." Like he's just in this movie, and this is again Jonathan Majors, unimpeachable. He is guy who shoots blue rays out of his hands, and That's pretty much it.
2: Well, and I think we do We do have a problem with Kang is cool and he, they've deployed him in interesting ways, but we don't know. He keeps talking about traveling th- through time, but why didn't he travel through time here? He's stuck in the quantum realm. I don't think he can travel through time. I think he needed that engine to travel through time, but he didn't have it because he needed Ant-Man to steal Pym particles. I was like, he has them on him. Why does he need to steal right. them? That didn't make none of that know. made sense. And I No, go ahead. I was going to oh. say, I like the idea that the whole thing is Ant-Man does heists, but I was like, the, the heist is he, in his wrist. The answer the <laughs> thing is right here. If he just gave that to him, he could have made the engine back to the size it needed to be or whatever.
1: Well, beyond the fact that in the first movie, the whole plot of the first movie was that Darren, who is now MODOK, was trying to recreate Pym Particles. And now he is in a situation where Kang, with 31st century technology or whatever he's using there... Eddie can't make pim particles like he shrunk them They're very down hard. He also Darren shrunk them down to the quantum realm. Like he he talks about that. So they have the possibility of doing it that central heist thing it makes no sense. It's nonsense. Like it, it is like you're saying it is a heist to have a heist because that is part of the movie but it is 100% not a heist. The other, the other thing that I want to mention about Kang though, is again, love Jonathan majors. I'm going to keep saying that until the cows come (laughs) home. But the fact that now in the MCU, we've been like, okay, Kang is an Avengers level threat. He's going to take down the Avengers. He's going to take down the whole universe. Also, once we watched him encourage a second tier Loki to kill him, and then he died. And the second time he was taken down by an army of ants, He doesn't seem like a very big threat to me at this point.
2: Well, and let me say, I agree completely. Also, they did the same trick twice. With In Loki, he was like, hey, I'm the good king. You don't want the others coming. And in this movie, he's like, hey, let me win. Otherwise, these other guys are coming. And then in the post-credit, we see the other guys. Then they're wearing like Halloween adventure style costumes. (laughs) I was like, yo, why did you kill the cool looking kings? And you got goof kings coming on the side here.
1: This was another thing, I mean, just to get back to the comic booky nature of it all, this is another thing where, like, costume-wise, at the very least, they lead way too much into the comics. You've got, and I know we're jumping yeah. ahead to the end credits here, but you get three Kangs, one maybe Scarlet Centurion. He has, like, these glowy things. Like He's like, I fell into yeah. a laser tag arena, and this is what I came out with. <laughs> yeah. But then you've got Ramatut, who is the Kang from back in Egypt, which they shouldn't touch at all, to be perfectly frank. No. And then also you've get got Who is the keg for the far future? In the comics at least, usually that's the keg is like, no, I don't want to be a conqueror anymore, I just want to study things. But that's the three of them together and they look like shit.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They look so goofy, and then they cut to like fifty other kangs screaming at each other. I was like, what is this? Why are they so mad? Or wound up. And that's where we leave. A villain that we're meant to take very seriously, the last moment we have in that scene, I was like, you've just undercut so much build up, <laughs> and so much of Jonathan Major's legit work, especially in the Loki series, of making this villain seem nuanced, smart, and scary. And then he's just <laughs> screaming in a canary. Well, and
1: then they follow it up. Mind you, I like the second seed because I like Loki. Great. It is a good show. But the second seed, to your point, is... Uh Owen Wilson being like, This guy doesn't look scary. Why is everybody so scared of them? And Loki being like, he's terrifying. Look at his terrifying goofy hair and mustache. So yeah, yeah they they have not done a good job of setting up Kang. However, I will mention at this point in Thanos' development, he had sat on a goofy chair and been basically uh, wrote and turned off his FaceTime on him. So Thanos yeah. also hadn't done a lot by this point in the MCU. So they have the possibility of turning it around. We'll see.
2: And that's fair. But I would argue that with with Thanos, they were slowly showing more of him. Mm-hmm. And Kang is already overexposed. So they have yeah. sort of the opposite trajectory here. Um, and I'm not saying that they can't pull it out. I'm just surprised by some of the ways that it happened. But I, the, I agree. The second sequence, I actually liked that Kang. That seems interesting. And we're finally using some time here. Some time travel. So hopefully, Loki, I do think it's weird that they're using major tentpole Marvel movie to mildly set up a second season of a Disney Plus show that, yes, does have big implications, but I found that to be a strange uh, big reveal uh, at the uh, end. Of I the- agree.
1: I think part of it, though, is everybody loves Tom Hiddleston as Loki. The Loki show is yeah. well-regarded. They are teasing it there. You got Owen Wilson in it, so that's interesting. So if you don't know what's going on, you might be like, oh, I got to check out that Loki show. That's that's cool. And you've also got, just to mention Easter egg-wise, Victor Timely, that is a character that Kang travels back in time in the comic books in order to basically pull a booster gold and use his future technology to seem more impressive than he is uh also timely is named after timely comics the original uh, name of marvel comics so fun little easter eggs in that scene that was good looking forward to loki season two um yeah there oh there was something else that i was going to say about kang i don't remember what it is
0: our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too
1: Yeah, Why don't we move on to the other characters, though? We've got Catherine Newton comes in here as Cassie, taking over for the actress who previously played Cassie, who is, I think, the same age, so weird that they didn't let her do this. But yeah. there's been a lot of talk online I've seen back and forth about Catherine Newton just being like, all she does in this movie is run and yell, dad, and that's pretty much it. Uh, how did you feel about her?
2: Yeah, I mean, especially I like Cassie in the comics. I, I think she's a good, like headstrong, like very Ant Man style. Like he, she is her uh, her father's daughter in the comics, and in this, she's a little bit of um, just a caricature of that. Like I want her to be a little grittier, and maybe she will be in um, a Young Avengers uh, style movie coming down the the pipeline. But but yeah, I wanted a little bit more from her, and especially the central relationship here is uh scott needs to save his daughter but we don't get time with them hanging out or we don't get to see them be fun they're just always running and missing and chasing and she's like drink the ooze and all that (laughs) that cutaway was crazy uh so like i guess all to say like i think she was all right but i want a, a story that really we get to see more of her
1: so, to throw out about her arc and not to be a backseat writer or anything like that, but again, I think this comes back to like if you could feel different iterations of the script while you were watching this. And the basic idea that Cassie, when she was six years old, was terrified of Yellow Jacket coming into her bedroom, called him the B man, that's traumatized her her whole life. And then finally, she gets some sort of catharsis against this guy. That's a good emotional arc. However, the way that they paid it off by her saying, don't be a dick, didn't make any sense to me. Like, if there was her growing big and being like, oh, I'm not scared of you anymore. Not that you necessarily need to spell it out. That works for me. Like, her getting over that fear. But... Her ultimately being like, hey, Darren, don't be a dick. That didn't seem to be an impression that she got from him. That's not what her trauma had to do with. It was more about pushing him so that he could stand up to Kang at the end and then we could get that final scene with MODOK.
2: Yeah, I agree. None of that really tracked for me. Like, And I think that goes to show with a lot of the characters here, they were a little too cool for school the entire time. Like, She never seemed scared. She just seemed like they kept falling into different very dangerous situations and she Mm -hmm. seemed like oh we got this this is fine don't be a dick it's like that's not what you say to your greatest fear the idea (laughs) that her greatest fear now looks like a, a total like dumb floating head that's a really interesting thing to have the boogeyman be lame when you finally confront it and they just didn't like to your point they just didn't pay that off and she wasn't there was no emotional arc for her in relation to that. And I think the same with Scott, I think same with um Wasp never felt truly under threat felt like the only one who was scared the whole time was Michelle Pfeiffer. And she actually knew it was – she was the one who did know what was going on and was a celebrity in the microverse.
1: So maybe you could explain this to me because I had trouble tracking her plot arc based on what we were told and what we were shown. And maybe I missed something or misinterpreted something. But the way that I understand it when she's talking to Bill Murray, which is another thing that we should talk about at some point, is (laughs) he's like – The implication from that scene is that she was working with Kang for a while. Everybody knew that. And then something happened and she abandoned everybody. And everybody was like, how could you leave us with Shell Pfeiffer and that's when everything went wrong in the microverse. But then we see the scene of her working with Kang where there's literally nobody around except for the two of them. She gets that psychic impression of him as a conqueror. Is like, nope, that's it. I'm out of here. And immediately, as soon as she finds other people, presumably starts or joins a resistance against Kang and is fighting against Kang the entire time until she's taken back home in Ant-Man and the Wasp. So... Those two ideas don't gel for me. And again, maybe there's something that I'm missing there.
2: Well, yeah, I think what we're missing a lot is just sort of an understanding of what the quantum realm is. In my brain, like hearing how it works, it feels like the quantum realm should be this endless and massive galaxy where there's – how would anyone ever know each other? It felt like what we were seeing with, um, with Janet – by yourself camping and then eventually Encountering Kang that felt like what it is The fact that it's like a huge hang Everyone knows everyone I was like how does this work The microverse is literally the tiniest version There should be millions and millions of mm-hmm. Planets so that is inherently Weird I wish they could explain that a little bit and
1: I think to get back to the Star Wars of all, and this is again why I think people are like responding to Star Wars a little bit. We've talked about this before on various podcasts. The cantina scene wrecked sci-fi from the first Star Wars. And this yeah. entire movie felt like they are like, we love the cantina scene. You love the cantina scene. What if this whole movie was the cantina scene? Wouldn't that be fun? And I'll tell you what, it's not fun. It's too much. They yeah. work to the cantina. It doesn't necessarily work here we get multiple iterations of that where with these, like we're talking about washes of characters, Bill Murray, I mentioned him before. I don't know what your theater's reaction is, but when Bill Murray showed up as the contact the Janet was waiting for, there was big laughter from the audience that like recognition laughter of like, oh, it's Bill Murray. He's here to do something funny. And then literally no reaction to any other thing that he said the entire time.
2: Well, and I think rightly so, like that character was like, oh, just a random guy basically who knows who had sex with Janet It's all we really get and isn't human. So you're like, sort of like, what does that mean? And then he eats a monster and then gets eaten by a different monster. And it's like, okay. Uh, it just felt like, again, like what did, I like, understand why you wanted that cameo, but what did you do with it here in this movie? Mm-hmm. And to get, so, get back to your yeah. your um, question about Janet, Like, I feel like she had that time with Kang and then then was the leader of the rebellion as Kang was becoming emperor. I think she was fighting against him and that's why everyone knows her. But they just didn't show us a frame of that. And I think we should have seen we only heard people talk retroactively about it. And I think it would have been a more interesting thing to see, you know, a, a two minute montage of her leading a rebellion. That would have been dope. And it would have given us so much more context to the current rebellion that we spend a ton of time hanging out with with characters that we don't ever get to know besides that guy wants holes, holes.
1: Let me just throw it out there and then I want to move on to the rebellion people. But if, if Janet was working with Kag and helped to build this whole society while they were waiting around and then, and this whole army and this armada, and then ultimately realize through the psychic vision when they were about to go home, oh no, I helped this conqueror do this thing. That explains a lot more to me. And it explains a lot more to me because she caused this rebellion, she caused the downturn of the microverse. That's something that when she gets back home, she would be embarrassed to tell people. I don't know why right. she would embarrass to be like, I met this really dangerous guy down there and I tried to stop him for decades. I can't talk about it. That that yeah. is weird to me.
2: <laughs> That's definitely true. I, I agree with that. And I would have liked it if they did build a society there. And it would make more sense why she was be revered yet feared, like you're saying, which I think is the vibe when people see her, they're like, oh, oh, no, you can't be here. And instead, we don't know, like you're saying, we don't know why.
1: Yeah. So here's, I don't want to put the blame on one person by any means, but just for some context, something that I was thinking about, this is written by a guy named Jeff Loveness. He is another ex-Rick and Morty writer, along with uh, Michael Waldron, who wrote Multiverse of Madness, yep. and also Kat Coyra, I believe, who, I think that was the, she, the showrunner of She-Hulk. So there's a lot of Rick and Morty people coming on here. Here's my basic thought about this movie, and I've seen other people put this out, so I, I'm not going to take credit for it, but more than a Star Wars movie, this feels like this is almost a Rick and Morty movie. I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty, yeah. but like, there's a lot of jokes in here. You were mentioning the Holes guy, straight up a Rick and Morty thing. All the Modoc things, yeah. very Rick and Morty things. Even like this rebellion and conqueror and the everything, while I was watching it, I was thinking, this is the sort of thing that could potentially work in a Rick and Morty scenario, down to all the thing about drink the ooze and all the gross stuff. But the problem is, I feel like they didn't make a choice which direction they were going to go with. The Ant-Man series so far has been kind. It has been nice. Rick and Morty gets some real emotion in it by the ends of the best episodes, but it's not kind. It's not nice. It's mean. It's characters shouting at each other and pushing each other down and saying snarky things. And this to me Walked right in the middle of that. Like, nothing was weird or gross enough. Nothing was mean enough. None of the jokes were sharp. They were all soft because they were walking this line between, oh, we're Marvel, we're not Rick and Morty, but also let's put some of these weirder ideas in here, like the guy who wants holes and everything. And because of that, you end up with this like 50% mishmash of tones that don't work and jokes that don't work because of that.
2: Uh, I agree with you. And I feel like. This, the tone of this movie, like you're saying, is like, like a soft Rick and Morty. And that is not the Marvel style. The Marvel style is like Tony Stark, rat-a-tat, like sarcastic. Let's get our jokes in. Let's get our quips in that, you know, ding each other, but everyone does care for each other at the end of the day. And I think that was the real, the winning formula of phase one and two and three. And we've lost that. Uh, there's, I think they're, you know, they're trying out other directions to go in. It, it makes sense. You have to change up and move forward. But this feels like such a step back. Like, and especially this movie, like this movie claims that these characters love each other and want to take care of each other, but we don't actually see it. Mm-hmm. They say it, but we don't actually see that in the way they treat each other and the way they perform their, everyone's a hero in the movie. They're all heroic, but we don't really feel it from anyone in relation to to each other, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, Just real quick, because I, I think we should move on to other things, but to talk down the rest of the characters or some of the other characters. William Jackson Harper, great, even though he was given some limp material to work with. I feel like he got at least some of the titters out of me in terms of laughter and his lines, but the way that it was cut together, like, the way that it was shot was bad. Like, there was the... I don't know if it was the editing or the footage they had or anything, but, like, the rhythm of the jokes were all off. And Michael Douglas, we mentioned before, what a weird arc. What a weird arc of, like... uh, They know he likes ads. This is what everybody is based on. They're all ad-based heroes being mean about and being like, I can't believe you like ads, you jerk. And then he shows these amazing things these ads are doing. And then the payoff is like, I like ads. There was that scene where it's just Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas in the ship, and Michelle Pfeiffer is doing like the... I don't actually have anything on set and I'm just sort of twisting my hands around and doing like Dr. Strange meets Tony Stark movies And Michael Douglas is there with his hands out in that goop yeah. thing. There gotta be a moment downtime on set where they're like, we used to be real actors.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Remember like talking to other people when they're just like gesturing weirdly pointed in different directions from each other. I mean, to talk about that for a second, like that's a big problem with, with this movie. And I think a lot of Soup, not even just Marvel movies, but just like the way characters aren't actually acting to each other. They're like lost. Like yeah. you can see Paul Rudd feels like he is legit. Like doing the lines and like, I know what this, what I'm supposed to say, but like, I don't know what's happening. Like (laughs) there's too much going on and they need to just sit down with each other and hang out and talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Even if you want to just do that, you need to do it a little bit in the beginning so we can get to know them and get to know who they are now. Like, I know we've seen two movies and uh, more of Scott Lang, but we need to see him here. Like he does the book stuff and everyone's like, you're lame. And then they're like, Michael Douglas? He's lame because he likes ants. And it's like, Michelle Pfeiffer, why is she so wound up? Like the movie's condescending to its talent and its characters in a way that if you let them breathe a little bit, then it doesn't have to be that way. Then we can get on board with their games. But it all is just such a wash because of the production stuff we're talking about and the way the the writing is, is put together.
1: Well, and listen, I think this gets to the bigger thing overall is... You can have something for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, what the volume is. I mentioned that earlier. This is a new type of sound stage that was started for The Mandalorian. That's basically a virtual background that is much more realistic looking so people can act against it. It works if you have somebody who knows how to shoot it properly. If it isn't somebody who knows how to shoot it properly, like what I think happened here, it looks bad. And the actors aren't acting off anything and they aren't looking at anything. The entire movie I spent being like, I wish you shot this in Arizona. You know, just like go to a desert. Nobody's going to be like... We have decades of movie making where they go to Arizona or they go to a desert somewhere. They shot freaking Star Wars in the same Tunisian desert a million times, and we're never like, that's Tunisia, you idiots. I know that's not Tatooine. Yeah. Like, we're able to go with you, and it gives people something to work off of. And I understand shooting on the same soundstage in Atlanta or London all the time is probably cheaper and saves some money, but it looks bad if you don't have the right person shooting it. Peyton Reed. Great comedy director, completely lost shooting a movie like this.
2: Well, and I think it especially works for something like Mandalorian, especially the earlier seasons where it was like one guy occasionally talking to (laughs) one other person. And it's like, great, stunning Vista character walking through limited cast, limited lines. You don't even see his lips move. So, like, you the writing and the story is always going to make it easier to shoot something that is, like, pulled back with a, a wide look interesting. And when this one, it's so interactive and there's, like, hundreds of characters on screen at different times. It is, like, it's just, it makes it so much harder for the people doing the performance and production to know what's happening, let alone us watching it.
1: Yeah. Well, why don't we move on to what you talked about earlier in terms of this transition from phase four to phase five? You've been very derogatory, I think, towards phase four and the direction of it. Now that we have this direction here, how are you feeling about that?
2: Well, I mean, I like that we have a direction, at least. Uh, I'm curious, though, what what our next steps are, because it does feel like the direction we're at now could be the beginning of phase six also the way mm-hmm. phase six is laid out. So we have a lot of time and we're fully in Kang world. So I don't know what, what will happen next and that's fine to not know what's going to happen, but the, it feels like we're the momentum built up very quickly, suddenly in this movie. So I think we need to get that where the momentum is going to yeah, go for the my, next
1: two My worry right now, thinking about this as compared to phase one through three is and this is kind of a crazy thing to say, but multiverse, if that's what we're dealing with, is one thing. And what I mean by that is, like, it is executed in the same way. We've already seen that. And I understand there was a utility in explaining it in Loki and that if people didn't watch a Disney Plus series, explaining it again here in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. But it feels like every time they introduce multiverse to, like, Sam Wilson, he's going to be like, what's going on? they're like, all right, there's this thing called variance and there's the universal time. And yeah. they're going to have to go through it every single time in different versions. Mm -hmm. And it executes almost exactly the same way. Versus the Infinity Stones, as they were introducing them, they're all different things. The Time Stone works differently than the Power Stone, works differently than the Reality Stone. Some of them were garbage, some of them were not. But you at least have some options there in terms of what actually happens in the movie. It's... uh, That is my worry right now. They can totally get around it. They're very creative screenwriters. But that is my concern now when we're getting into the multiverse is it's a lot of Kang over and over. The same guy, Jonathan Major's Dude dressed in his like Egyptian uniform, but now he's wearing a big mustache and now he's like in a – I don't know. He's wearing a Gumby costume or whatever. Like he's going to come out in a bunch of different ways and unless we see this execute differently and interesting things happen, um, it's going to feel samey. It's going to feel repetitive. So that's that's my
2: worry right now. Well, and back – i agree and back in in infinity stone first the first three phases they slowly parceled out information and we comic book people knew like i think i know what this is it allowed us to speculate and have some fun that way and they've flipped it with this where it's like it's the multiverse so now we're going to re-explain the multiverse a bunch of times and we know what it is and we even know kang pretty well now so how are they going to Parcel out information How are they going to Reignite our curiosity So we can have these debates And get us to these next movies When they've already shown All their cards
1: Yeah The other thing That we should probably Talk about here Is Obviously, we're pretty negative about the quality of this movie. There's been a big divide here, as there usually is with any big budget movie, between fans and critics. Everybody points out the Rotten Tomatoes score. The audience score as of this taping is in the 80s, I think, and the critic score is like 47% or something like that. So there's definitely a divide going on there, and this expands into a big, like, is Marvel over debate. Yeah. Start with that second thing first. I think it is very naive to say that Marvel is over. I think,
2: yeah. It's a huge success, this movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to keep going. I do think, though, and this really depends, obviously, on your personal reaction to these things and your personal feeling about things, because I've seen people who have really loved this movie and had a good time watching this movie, and I think that's great. But I do think the perception of the quality ratio of Marvel has flipped. And it is flipped through Phase 4 where everybody were willing to give it a chance because there's such a good feeling about this franchise. But given there were mixed reactions to a lot of things in Phase 4, now that you have a movie that 50% of people think is bad and 50% of people think is good, now it starts to feel like there's cracks in the armor. Do you agree with that?
2: I agree. And just this is very anecdotal, but like when the movie ended – um, at Disney Springs in Florida when I watched it at 1.30 in the morning, people were like, okay, like there was no, <laughs> the enthusiasm was not there. Everyone was sitting there waiting for the post-credit scenes, but there wasn't the energy of the earlier Marvel movies where it was like, yeah, all right, here we go. And people talking and being like, okay, so what that means is like someone explaining what the post scene, post-credit scene is and all that, that energy just wasn't there. And I think people will still go see these movies like we're definitely in the machine, but I would throw out there. And this is a little business speculation. If DC, if Flashpoint is as good as the trailer is making it, even though we are hesitant to believe that (laughs) uh, if it's good and if what James Gunn says like, hey, we're going to write great stories first and then we're going to make great movies based on those scripts. That could really upset the dynamic here. Mm -hmm. If Marvel starts to lose ground and DC starts to gain ground, then things are going to get crazy in a way that will make all the movies better.
1: I 100 percent agree with that. And I I think, you know, this gets to there's been a a lot of talk about with Bob. Iger, I mean, there's two Bobs, so I almost picked the Bob. But Bob Iger Jay, coming Bob. back. One yeah, of the Bobs. Bob, one of the Bobs coming back and being put in charge of Disney, kind of looking at everything and being like, whoa, let's hold back there. Let's kind of reevaluate what we're doing with Disney Plus, with our theatrical releases. Marvel has talked about they're slowing things down a bit. We may only get two Disney Plus series this year. They moved the Marvels back to November, again, as of this taping, and are sort of looking very carefully at the movies and how the plot works. It still could be bad, you know, like anything could be bad. Less of something doesn't necessarily mean it's better, but at least it means that you're spending more time and thinking about it. And I think this gets to what you're saying about DC that frankly, this is the same thing that's been in comics for decades is DC and Marvel flip back and forth in terms of their quality and yeah. they challenge each other to do better. When DC is ascendant, Marvel's like, Oh shoot, we got to catch up. And when Marvel is ascendant, DC does exactly the same thing. It also, when they're down, it allows them their time to be like, well, we're out of the spotlight. Let's just try things. Let's figure things out. We can't play in the safe anymore. Yeah. I don't know if that goes into Hollywood. A, a machine that traditionally plays as safe as humanly possible leads into that, but I, I would hope it does. I mean, Marvel started at a place where it was, this is a risky bet. Will this even work? At the very least, I, I was going back and taking a look at this, and I feel like at the very least, through the end of Phase 2 with Atmad, they were in places where they were like, let's just try things. Let's see what works. I don't know if it's going to work. we got to put it all on the table here. And then post that, when they started heading towards endgame, they started to play it a little bit safer and started to just be like, okay, we're setting up this thing to set up this thing. We're going to slot that in there. And that very much feels like the place they're in with Phase 4 where they tried a lot of things but not – as strongly as perhaps they would have back in the day. So this is a long way of saying, to your point, if DC does end up being ascended, and we really won't know that for another five years, honestly, then that potentially pushes Marvel into a place where they are second tier and they can hopefully try a little bit harder. Well,
2: and I think it is about taking more time, really writing into your scripts more before you're already... A bit- Thinking about the larger story and the larger plot machinations, like really thinking about your characters getting through that stuff before you make the bigger swings, which is what they did in those early phases, because that's all they had. They had the characters. They had great talent in there and they let that drive the story. And they were a little I, they were like brasher with like, we'll figure this out. But they did. And now it's like, we got to figure it figured out, but they're not doing the smaller work of making the individual movies, individual characters as exciting and emotional and interesting as possible.
1: Yeah, I think to get back to ant you're 100% right about that, because like we've been talking about. The emotional core of Ant-Man isn't here. Like, the emotional core of the actors aren't here. There's spectacle on display. There is plot on display. So if those are the things you respond to, and I've certainly seen a lot of fans respond to that in terms of, yes, we're finally getting keg. We're finally getting the plot. That's what a lot of fans want out of comic books, too. They just want the plot to move things forward forward. That's not personally what I respond to. I would rather a movie that has almost zero plot or at least like a little bit of plot, like an idea there, but really it's about the characters and the emotion. And my big takeaway from this movie is I came out feeling nothing. Like I didn't feel anything at any point. And that is a huge negative to me.
2: Well, and I sort of made the comparison flipply, but like the Star Wars prequels, episodes one, two, and three had the same problem. They were all plot, all like we're going to get to the stuff you already know. Isn't that exciting? It was like it is exciting, but you have to really like all these characters um, before we can get there. And I think there—that's a true suffering of this movie. So, um, hopefully, going forward, they can they can flip it back.
1: Uh, before we wrap up here, why don't we go to our vision board where we talk about what is coming next in Marvel? The tease at the end here was not Ant Man will return. But Kang will return. Uh, we get the big tease at the end of, I was about to say the episode, but end of the film where once again, we nonsensically get Ant-Man's narration. Uh, I say nonsensically because at the beginning, he was reading a book. At the end, he's just thinking and we're hearing his thoughts, I believe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we, a new book. Maybe a new book. Uh, but uh, he is wondering about, hey, Kang said something bad is coming Uh uh-oh, did I cause the end of the world? No big deal. I'm going to eat some bad ice cream cake. And that's where they kind of end up there. So what do you think is coming out of this? Where, I mean, I think we know a couple of places, but where are we going to see Kang next? Are we going to see Ant-Man again? What's going to happen?
2: Well, we're going to see Kang and Loki probably, um, and maybe not in many other places for a while, I would hope. Let's give, we need to get a little Kang break. Let Kang gang chill a little bit. Um, My big takeaway from this movie, though, is who exiled that Kang there? The other Kangs? Or was it a perhaps universe-exploring family of four that Mm. travels around the cosmos? Are we going to get something that leads back to this Kang being stuck there at some point? Interesting.
1: I... Uh, My implication was that it was those three at the end who exiled him, but we could certainly see Kang in a Fantastic Four movie. That makes a lot of sense. To big picture about the plot as we're going forward, I think what we're going to get is we have all these Kangs, like you just mentioned. We're going to see at least a couple of them probably in Loki or different iterations of the same Kang. We might see him in Fantastic Four as well, but I think the place that we're heading towards is Kang Dynasty, we're going to get a very loose adaptation of the Kang Dynasty storyline from Avengers, which is great, by the way, where Kang rewrites the timeline so that he's won. He has conquered the earth. He has conquered everything. The Avengers are in prisons as a post-apocalyptic world. And that's something that we haven't actually seen yet. And I
2: love that. That idea of a hard reset in a world where our heroes are in separate places, it'll feel a lot like the post-blip scenes in Avengers um, Infinity War, which is exciting. Yeah. Great place. So
1: I think we're going to get that. And then the other thing we're going to get that was teased back in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, and again mentioned here, they use the word incursion. For anybody who doesn't know, this is something from Jonathan Hickman's run of – Fantastic Four, and then in Secret Wars, and played at a bunch of different other places. But basically, I think what we're going to get is through probably not even Kang's finagling, but something in terms of how they try to reverse the timeline and stop Kang and Kang Dynasty. They're going to cause an incursion that's going to destroy... The entire universe. Like Kang talked about in this movie, we're getting towards the end of everything. It's going to be the end of every universe. And ultimately, what happens in Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars is they are able to hold on to little pockets of different dimensions and create a new planet called Battle World, which is taken from the original Secret Wars in 1985. Ultimately, it's revealed, I believe, in that crossover that Dr. Doom is running it. But the rumor is, and this is a potential spoiler, but I think this makes a lot of sense, is the ruler of Battleworld in Avengers Secret Wars is going to be another variant of Kang called the Beyonder. And given that they have given him multiple names at this point, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. You still have Kang as the villain in Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars, but we get to see Jonathan Majors in a mullet, and that's a big win for everybody.
2: I mean, I, in watching this movie and how much they've exposed Kang so far, the idea of having Kang be the villain of the Secret Wars movies would, that feels like too much. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. Maybe, maybe they'll do it like you're saying, but it feels like we're going to ride with this guy as our main villain for what, three more years. That feels like so much time with, with this guy.
1: It does feel like a lot of time, and really all they need is for Hank Pym to pull out his army That's again, and they'll win against Kang every single time.
2: Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Another thing, though, um, coming out of this, especially with Cassie stature um, being mm-hmm. uh, here, like we're barreling toward Young Avengers. And it's also exciting to me, uh, if, if you haven't read the Young Avengers run of comics, the leader is a guy named Iron Lad that we find out later is a young Kang. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're going to get a young version of Kang, who is a hero in the MCU, is really cool if they go with that direct adaptation.
1: And if they do that, do you think they should have Jonathan Majors with like a high squeaky voice that keeps breaking?
2: Hey, I'm going to go to Egypt.
1: (laughs) That's my next stop. And then I'm going to have a beard. And then I'm going to fall into a laser tag arena.
2: Are you guys sick of me yet? I'm everywhere. I'm in Creed, too. Oh,
1: my God. Dude, Just real I, quick, before we wrap up here, that final fight with Kang and Ant-Man, even if like it was filmed way too closely, the amount of power that John Majors was putting yeah. in the punches, I was like, Jesus, we're watching a Creed movie right now. He's going to kill Ant-Man, and not in a way that I'm scared, but like he's going to kill Paul Rudd, like not Ant-Man,
2: Paul Rudd. Yeah, that's dead. what... 100%. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was like, Ant-Man beats... Jonathan Majors? I don't think so. That's a real <laughs> science fiction right there.
1: Yeah. All right. There we go. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum media. Please let us know. Even if you like the movie, we love hearing from people that like movies, even if we are very negative for most of this episode. But if you'd like to support, uh, what were you going to say, Justin, or are you just sighing?
2: Oh, I I also like movies, Um, but let me (laughs) throw out there. There were a couple good jokes. The the joke with MODOK being like, at least I got to die in Avenger was, I thought, very good and like very much in tone with Marvel comedy. And it should have. I wanted more stuff like that. Yes.
1: Yeah. That whole scene with MODOK dying, I thought was great. Uh, Him vomiting a little bit. Again, very Rick and Morty, the whole thing. But I enjoyed it. Uh, That was one of the only parts that I laughed. So there you go. MODOK. Best part of the that, movie, we both agree.
2: That's called that's called positive corner. We do it right at the end.
1: <laughs> if you like to support this podcast through other podcasts, we do patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at seven PM to crowdcast on YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about the MCU. Apple, iTunes, those are the same thing. Spotify, Stitcher, or the app are your choice (laughs) to subscribe and listen to the show at Marvel Vision Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, stay marvelous.
2: Stay marvelous. Pete, you have a take? No time. Bye-bye.